This season, you have hot chocolate, and you get it, and it's cold, and you get a nice cup of hot chocolate. Well, James is like that dollop of whipped cream you put on the top of that hot chocolate with a few chocolate sprinkles on it. So refreshing. Hey, we're in Nehemiah chapter 9 today and 10, and we've been invited into following Nehemiah's journey. We're reading his memoir in this book, sort of like his private journal, and he's uh, just revealing to us his walk with God and what it's like to be uh, a leader of the people of God. And uh, here we come into chapter 9, and we discover that building walls is often easier than building people. Not that building walls and construction isn't complicated and frustrating and difficult, but if you've ever built something, you know at the end of the day, you step back and you look and you say, progress, this is what I've done. Those of you that work with people, if you're a parent or a teacher or you have employees, at the end of the day, you look and you say, what have I done? It's chaotic. Working with people is difficult. But Nehemiah was in the people business. The whole point of the project was the people. He built the wall to protect and help the people to thrive. The River Church is in the people business. We're excited about that. I was reading about Pastor Josh Gallagher. He's the pastor of the Paradise Alliance Church up in Paradise, where the whole town has basically been obliterated by the campfire. And he said, you know, our church building and the local high school is about the only thing left standing. It's a 3,000-person church. 18 of the 21 staff members of his church have lost their homes, burned to the ground, including uh, Pastor Josh. And he's like, what, what do I do now? You know, how, how do I care for the church? And I, I find it really interesting. James and I didn't even talk about this, but, but I was reading Josh's story, and he brought up Psalm 88 that, that James read for us. That was the sermon he preached last week, Psalm 88. He called it the Sermon of the Ands. God, you're amazing, and I'm really confused by your actions today. God, I worship you, but God, I'm also really angry. This is so difficult. He says, how do I care for my church? The church of 3,000 now is scattered all over California, and we've been praying. We just... We pray for the people that have been displaced. It's just absolutely devastating and impossible to imagine or understand unless we happen to be in that situation. And he recounted a conversation where a representative from FEMA had come into paradise and had gathered some city leaders and had said, look, I've never ever in my career seen a city destroyed like this. He said, but... The only way that this town is going to come back together again, come back to life, and have a future is if the faith communities do what they're best at. Because it's in the church, FEMA said, where people find hope and a sense of belonging. Yeah, the building will be really helpful. But most of the churches, their buildings are gone. They're gone. 
Nehemiah paid attention to the spiritual formation of the people in Jerusalem. Yeah, the wall was important, but it was the people that were so valuable and important. He paid attention to what are the practices of a faithful person in their relationship with God. It's what, it's what we call being a disciple. But what does it mean to follow Jesus and to obey everything that he has commanded us? What kind of life, what kind of practices should we be involved in as a disciple? And with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.19, we say, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And whether the church building burns down or not, the passion is Christ being formed inside of us as disciples. That was Nehemiah's overarching passion. And so we move into Nehemiah 9 and 10, and we're going to do a flyover as if we were in a helicopter flying over the fire devastation, and we get a, a bird's eye view. We're going to Move through Nehemiah 9 and 10. I invite you to have a copy of the scriptures open in front of you so you can follow along. And I really see these two practices that Nehemiah now lands on are confession and commitment. Confession in chapter 9 and commitment then in chapter 10. So let's look at this confession. There was joy and feasting in chapter 8. Remember Todd led us through Nehemiah Eight, where they said, hey, you know, no sad faces. It's time for a feast in response to the hearing of the word of God. And we heard Solomon say in Ecclesiastes 3, 4, you know, there is a time to weep and there's a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time for a festival and there's a time for fasting. And you know that sometimes those things are not linear. They happen all at once. If you've ever been to a memorial service of someone that you love, you know in the midst of the crying, you sometimes tell a story and you all break out laughing. There's such a, a thin veil between our times of mourning and our times of laughter. And so the feasting is going on and they just seamlessly move into a time of fasting as well. Look at Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. You know, we children, we love to confess the sins of our dads and moms, you know, but but they confessed their own sins. They didn't like bag on and confess all the sins of the surrounding nations and cultures. No, the starting point is to own our own stuff. So they confessed their sins. This was insider business. This is the business of the church. This is the, the foundational spiritual practice is the the practice of confession, of being honest with ourselves, with one another, and with God, and saying, it's me. This is on me. 
You know, confession is sort of a way to detoxify the soul. You know, to just to bring something in and, 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 and clean it out, clean out the junk and the residue and the toxins that are, that are stifling us, that are holding us back, that are pushing us down. And Israel knew that. They knew that in addition to the feasting, it was time for some serious confession. And I see in verse 3 here, there's three parts to this confession. Verse 3, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and then they spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Three parts. The first is reading scripture. It's just that the people of God gather and we hear the scriptures. So important to have that a part of our lives, hearing scripture. Secondly, in response, they worshiped God. They declared who he was. And in times of crisis, in times of great difficulty, it is so important that we are once again declaring God's faithfulness and remembering our history with God to tell one another and remind one another of those stories. And then the third part is confessing sin, and that's just basically agreeing with God about reality and what is actually going on. You're familiar probably with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a fantastic declaration. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. There's a there's a starting point in its confession. The word confess there is the Greek word homologeo, which essentially means to say the same thing as God. Confession is just being real and honest and authentic with God, and it's saying the same thing that God says about what is actually happening. That's what worship is. That's what the scripture brings us to. That's why we need the word of God to remind us and put into our minds who God is and who we are. Confession is that spiritual discipline of a disciple that unlocks growth. Concrete confession leads to concrete forgiveness. Being very specific and tangible. So verse of chapter 9, Nehemiah says, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting and thus begins the longest prayer in the Bible recounting essentially the story of Israel. It's our faith story. It's where we find our origins and our birth as a people of faith. Several of us heard a guest speaker last night and one statement he made really stood out to me. He said this, show me the stories you read and listen to, and I will tell you the story you are living. What stories are you reading and listening to? Stories form us spiritually. What stories are forming you? Are you being formed by cable news networks? 
Are you being formed by the stories on social media? Are you being formed by the stories that you continue to have ringing in your ears about who you are, which aren't really true. It's why we need to anchor our story in the big story of God. He goes on to say, blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise and then this prayer moves into talking about the God of creation and then notice it moves into the call of Abraham and the formation of this this people that God is calling out and then the story of them being enslaved in Egypt and then God calling them out of Egypt setting them free and crossing the Red Sea and then they move into the wilderness and then we hear the story of Moses and the receiving of the Ten Commandments. And then in those long days in the wilderness, God provided manna for them. They worshipped. They retold the story of God's faithfulness. But notice verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. This is a story of humanity. That's our common story. God is so gracious and generous and watches over us. And then we become arrogant and stiff-necked, unable to learn, unable to be guided and move to the left or the right by the wonderful, gracious hand of God. I have to tell you, that's my story. That's my experience. I can keep it hidden. But arrogance is the root of the stiff-neckedness <laughs> that causes me to say, God, I, I, I kind of want to do it my way. And I'm going I'm to kind of push you aside. The prayer goes on. The Israelites complained about being in the wilderness and then said, we want to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back into slavery. And then they created this golden calf and held it before him and said, this is our God. Idolatry is just taking something else and putting it in the place of God. And in this case, it was a material object. Idolatry can creep up around us and in us in so many different forms. Verse 19, but... Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. God was so long-suffering and so patient with them. There were 40 years of being sustained by God's hand and protection in the wilderness. And then he gave them possession of the promised land. And the prayer says they reveled in the goodness we love that. We love to revel in the goodness of God. But notice verse 26. But they were disobedient and they rebelled. God sent them prophets to warn them and they killed the prophets. They're then oppressed by the neighboring nations. God sent them judges to bring them back onto the right path they confessed and were rescued 
by God every time. Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. It says time after time. That's our story. It's like a cycle. It's like we enjoy the goodness and then we think we don't need God. and We try to do it on our own and we turn away from God. In their confession, they said, we've been arrogant, we have disobeyed, we're stubborn, we're stiff-necked, and God finally sent them into exile. You know, so often our experience of exile is just the natural consequences of the choices that we make. And that's where we find ourselves in Nehemiah. They're in exile, and now they're coming home. Ezra has read the law, they've rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the wall, and now the focus needs to be on building these people. Verse 33, in all that has happened to us, you, God, have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. And the prayer ends, because of our sins, we are in great distress. Richard Foster wrote a great book. It's called Celebration of Discipline. Many of you have read this. It's a classic, and it's all about the spiritual disciplines that help us grow in Christ. And in his chapter on confession, which is outstanding, and the next chapter is on worship, which is even better, he says that there's three things necessary to confession. And the first one is this. It's an, an honest examination of the conscience. I, by the way, I just want you to know I love that sound. <laughs> now, I know some of you parents are sitting here and you're picking out the voice of your child. You, you know that voice? Yeah. I, I, it's okay, you know, yeah. And the thing is, is that our hearts go out and... Um, some people feel like, oh, that's a distraction. No, 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 they're the main event. So, so we, we rejoice in that. And if you're a parent and you feel like, oh, my child, no, 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 no. It's oh, my child. It's, it's A-okay. We love it. In fact, they, you can bring them in here. Bring them in here. The first part of confession, Richard Foster says, is an honest examination of the conscience. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't it true that, 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 that we have to be like so relentlessly honest about what is true about us and our hearts? And frankly, that's scary. There are so many times I don't want to look in there. Keep a lid on it. What is, what is possible coming out of me and my heart and my spirit. I, I just want to push that down. Maybe, you know, there's something connected to my childhood or something connected to decisions I made in my adolescence or circumstances around me, but in the center of that is my heart and my spirit and my will. And the, and the first step is to be ruthlessly honest about reality. And the second is sorrow. 
Now the thing is, is God never intends for us to be stuck in sorrow. But if you've been the parent of a child, you know oftentimes when they get in trouble for their behavior, they say, I am so sorry. And do you know what that means? I am so sorry you caught me. Because sorrow has to lead to the third ingredient, that is a determination not to sin. Sorry doesn't mean anything without the will to change how we're living. And frankly, there's a lot of temporary sorrow that's not true repentance. It hasn't touched deep in the heart. And I'll tell you, we, we can't do this on our own. It's not just an exercise of the will. There, there's no hope and help without God in his presence. So confession was foundational, and that led to the second, and that is commitment. They made a commitment. Verse 38 of chapter 9, very end. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders are affixing their seals to it. This is a, a, a re-covenanting. God had made a covenant with them, and now they were stepping in, and they were saying, we want to recommit our lives to you, God. We want to be your people. And in confession, we're going to commit to going your way in life. Notice verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, uh, verse 28 of chapter 10. The musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. They had gathered together. They would prayed for revival, and they said, may it begin with us. And in writing, we're going to commit to be your people in this new city. And I see for them... It touched on three areas of their lives. And I know there's many, many more. And you may have all sorts of different areas as you consider committing your life to God that might come and a place where you would make a commitment. But here are the three. In verse 30, it included family. It included a family solidarity. It included a commitment to uh, pay attention to how we live as a family in um, proximity to all the neighboring cultures around us. And you know today that it's hard um, to be a family. There's forces that are tugging on our families. And, and maybe today more than any others, the, 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 the tug is our schedule. It's, it's the activities. It's the things that feel like it's going to pull you apart and pull your family apart because we're all going so fast. And the commitment may be, God, I'm going to pay attention to that. I'm going to see how these cultures, both outside and inside our family, 
are affecting us and are living in alignment with you. It feels like sometimes, you know, we just dip our toe into the rushing river of activities that are accessible and available to us today, and it grabs our foot and sucks us in to the white water, and now we're, we're, we're rushing down this, this river, feeling like we're out of control, and how, how do we manage? Where do we, where do we get off this, this ride? And they said, we're, we're going to make a commitment that we're going to guard and guide our family according to your word and according to your will as we understand it in this season of our life. And for those that have children in the home, it's an incredibly difficult, tricky, confusing time, and God knows and understands and is right there with you. It's not easy, but he says it's worth it to be attentive to this. The second is in verse 31, and this had to do with a recommitment to Sabbath rest. And it had profound implications for them because they committed that they would no longer do business on the Sabbath. And when the the foreigners would come in to bring their goods, they would say, we're not going to buy from you. The Sabbath is built into the creation. God worked six days, and on the seventh, he rested, and he said, I'm giving you a model. This is so important for human beings that you have time of productivity, and then you have time of rest. And when electricity was invented and the light bulb came into our homes and now the internet, we can do business 24-7 because someplace on the planet our partners are doing business and we have to pay attention to it. We can do work all the time. And they said, you know what, there's going to come a time when we turn it off and we set it down and we rest in God's presence. And it was a bold economically risky move for them. But they said, no. This has implications for our weekly rhythm, for how we live, and what we say yes to and what we say no to. Time of activity and a time of rest. And then the third was the house of our God, verse 32 all the way through verse 39. They said in, in verse 32, like, we're, we're going to get involved. We're going to be volunteers in the service of the house of our God. We assume the responsibility for all the duties of the house of our God. And I was so excited and proud of the people that that made the ministry festival happen, and many of you were, were involved, in, and there are so many ministries that are at the river, both, both the ministries that, that help inside the church, but all these amazing ministries that happen outside the church, and there were all these on-ramps, and so many of you said, I'm going to find my place. God has gifted me, God has called me, and, and I'm going to have a part in the service of the house of God someplace. And they recommitted themselves to doing that. Beyond that, they also were very serious about their determination to be givers. To be givers financially. The the annual sacrificial 
uh, giving. They committed to financing all aspects of the church. And I just want to say that as a person who is uh, a pastor at the river, and as awkward as it is, I receive my salary at the river because of your generous giving. But beyond that, our other staff members, and then the support of all, all these ministries. And this is the great thing about just going through the Bible. There it is. People were sacrificial in their giving. And I just have to say, the people at the river are incredibly sacrificial and generous in your giving. You really are. And I want to just say thank you for that. Not just because it's my salary. It's because together we own the responsibility of the church in its ministries and in volunteering and in contributing. And for these Israelites, it had a profound financial impact in their lives. And then... It ends in verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. So I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he thinks about the house of God, he makes a very interesting switch. In Ephesians chapter 2, he begins to talk about the temple of God, and in his calling and passion, he saw that the church was made up of all different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, and his passion was that they would live in unity, that, that, that they would work together, volunteer together, give together, and he called the gathering, the, those Jews and Gentiles together, he called that group the new house of God. So at the river, we don't focus so much on buildings, although we're grateful for the Norris and the people that work here and help us have a gathering here. But with Pastor Josh Gallagher up in paradise, we understand that the church is more than the buildings because those buildings can burn down and the river church will keep right on going because the church is the people. A disciple is a learner or an apprentice of Jesus being formed and built by his word through worship and confession so that in Jesus' words, we might learn how to obey everything that he has commanded us. So what is forming you? What's forming your family? What's forming your finances? What is forming your relationship with the house of God? the new house of God. And essentially, this is really a Kairos moment. You've heard us talk about a Kairos moment before. It comes from Jesus' words in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where he said, the time has come. The time is right now. Here it is. We have the present. He goes on to say, the kingdom of God has come near. Now repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. Nehemiah chapter 9 is repent. Nehemiah chapter 10 is believe. 
A kairos moment is the moment in time when God comes near and he speaks to you. The Holy Spirit is prompting you. He's stopping you in your tracks. He's nudging you. And it's really easy to push that away and to say, no, I, not right now. A kairos moment is your moment. It's when the kingdom comes near and Jesus says, repent. Repent means, God, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me, God? I reflect. I talk to my friends. I, I feel like God is pushing me in a particular direction. And then believe is chapter 10. And that's essentially, what are you going to do about it? And this is the place where so often our Christian maturity is stunted. We hear God, we ignore him, and we don't move on. We don't act on it. We don't repent. We don't, we don't make that change. And for the Jews, it says they put it in writing. This week might be a really good week with a change of pace potentially and some family coming in and like a different rhythm of life. This might be a good time to take your journal out and do some writing and reflecting listening to God. God, what are you saying to me? What are the areas in my life that you're poking on? And, and what do you want me to do about it? What are the new commitments that I'm going to make to God? They put it in writing. And it's helpful to, to write it down, to actually see it on paper. And then to find a friend and talk to a friend about what God is doing in your life. What is the, what's the new commitment that you're going to make in your relationship with God. Confession begins in sorrow and ends in joy. Honesty starts with confession. Confession leads to commitment. Commitment sets in motion a change. And change can bring freedom. And freedom turns into joy. God created us for joy. You remember? The joy of the Lord is our strength. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up here, and I'm going to ask you all to stand with me. We're going to do a practice run, a public confession of faith. Will you all stand? And I want you to read with me the confession, as you will, that's on the screen, uh, not a manipulation and certainly uh, not a requirement, but here's a practice as we come to the Lord's table, and um, the Lord's table is the place where confession is welcome, where worship is welcome, and we take the bread, which is the body of Jesus. It's broken for us. Jesus said, here, take this. Eat it. Take it into you. And we dip it in the cup. The cup represents the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we come to this table with a, a worshipful mindset that Jesus has provided this. So will you read out loud with me? There's two slides. Most holy and merciful Father. We confess to you and to one another that we have sinned against you by what we have done and 
by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not fully loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not always had in us the mind of Christ. You alone know how often we have grieved you by wasting your gifts, by wandering from your ways. Forgive us, we pray, most merciful Father, and free us from our sin. Renew in us the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, 